Johnny and AJ here. Are you looking to improve your EQ with elite human dynamics? You see, 17 years ago, we decided to curate the latest science and research in human dynamics and deliver it free to you. And we've learned that your ability to stand out, build rapport, and influence the people around you is what gets you noticed, respected, and admired. So whether you're introverted or extroverted, your communication skills can always be improved. If influence and charm come natural for you, great. But for others, it's a skill that can be learned. After coaching over 10,000 clients on how to communicate powerfully, we've learned a thing or two about what it actually takes to be influential and persuasive. We've packaged these insights inside our Social Capital Networking Masterclass. And as a thank you for being a podcast listener, we want to give you this masterclass for free. Inside the Social Capital Networking, you'll get three resources that help you build high-value relationships quickly and grow your social capital. To get your hands on this free masterclass, and immediately start improving your relationships, go to theartofcharm.com slash capital. Remember, you can learn all the skills and elite communication concepts from the show and more. Start with our social capital networking masterclass for free at theartofcharm.com slash capital, linked in the show notes. All right, let's kick off today's show. We started the show over 16 years ago to build better relationships and grow our own social capital. Today's guests are experts in relationship building and rapidly growing your social capital. The experts you'll hear on this episode are Jeffrey Cohen, Stanford professor and author of Belonging, The Science of Creating Connection and Bridging Divides. He joined us in September of last year to discuss the three ingredients to build empathy and foster deep relationships. Dr. Carol Robin joins us, who's been teaching the legendary course, Interpersonal Dynamics at Stanford Graduate School of Business. And her episode, How to Build World-Class Connections and Lead with Vulnerability, is from May of 2021. Now, Colin Coggins and Garrick Brown are authors of The Unsold Mindset, the four lessons you can take from sales to improve your relationship, aired in February of 2023. And our good friend, David Siegel, the CEO of meetup.com, joins us to discuss how to build an epic social circle anywhere. And last but not least, Susan McPherson, the author of The Lost Art of Connecting, shares with us the secret to building exceptional relationships. And it's not what you think. We also discuss the real problem with building relationships and how we can overcome it, as well as a simple strategy to meet new people and how to turn your acquaintances into real friends. Up first, we have Jeffrey Cohen explaining what makes a great relationship. Well, a belonging is, uh, a sense of belonging is a sense that we're part of a group that values us, uh, accepts us, and to which we can contribute. Evolutionarily, as human beings, we're wired to be social and we're exquisitely attuned to whether or not the people in our groups are accepting of us, welcoming of us. Uh, so it makes sense that uh, belonging would be a really important concept and it's something that we really care about, that we're exquisitely attuned to. You heard Jeffrey, and we discussed this on the show at length. You are a herd animal, and your strength, influence, and safety depends on that herd. The more supported and engaged you are in the group, the more you'll get out of it. This is what being high value is all about. Now, Carol Robbins shares, what are confidence and why has the number of confidants that we have, that is, the people we have an exceptional relationship with, declined over the past decade? We're becoming isolated, lazy, and losing our ability to connect. You must actively work at building, maintaining, and strengthening your relationships, or you'll find yourself 
with a shrinking social circle. I think as human beings, we need the experience of feeling known and seen, and it's reciprocal if in fact the relationship is functional. Never mind exceptional, which the book talks about, but just let's just get to functional. So you're right that a confidant is a person that you trust, that you can be honest with, and that you're not afraid is going to use whatever you tell them against you, all of which are hallmarks of relationships that are moving on this continuum from mere contact to actual connection and then exceptional. Now, in the last 10 years, there's been a lot of studies coming out about Americans losing this connection. And in fact, over 25% of Americans report zero confidence in their life. Another 50 only have one, which tends to be a spouse. Why do you think we're losing confidence in our life at such a drastic rate? And by the way, so core to why we decided this book needed to be written. (laughs) And of course, you know, it's tied to this legendary course where the students at the Stanford Business School learned all the skills and competencies that you need in order to create these kinds of relationships. What's happened over the last 20 years? First of all, let's just think about what's happened over the last year. I mean, we've become so polarized, so tribal, so quick to judge. We've lost curiosity about each other. And all we do is look for people that think and see the world and want to affirm that the way we see the world, the same way. So, you know, the course at the business school was called Interpersonal Dynamics. The the students, of course, as you know, called it touchy-feely, which we can come back to. But I always used to say the course really should have been called Connecting Across Differences. Being isolated is an environmental toxin similar to smoking. Being excluded from a group hurts just like physical pain, even if being excluded happens in a computer simulation. It's toxic. It's toxic. At least when a sense of not belonging or being ostracized is chronic or prolonged, it is, as Steve Cole uh, at UCLA Medical School puts it, one of the worst environmental toxins out there. So research suggests, for instance, that the damage to our, our bodies as a result of chronic isolation or chronic sense of being alone, being disconnected from humanity is as bad for you as smoking a pack of cigarettes a day in terms of even longevity. So we don't really think about environmental toxins this way. We can, we're kind of usually thinking about the radon in my cellar or uh, secondhand smoke, but it turns out that these social toxins are pretty harmful too, even though they're kind of less visible and we don't really think about them. Uh, then in terms of kind of acute effects, uh, one of my favorite studies is from uh, a social psychologist named Kip Williams, where he just looks at the, you know, kind of these momentary experiences of ostracism where, you know, in his famous paradigm, people are online playing a cat game of catch with graphic avatars and they don't even know who these other people are that they're ostensibly playing catch with. Unbeknownst to uh, the subjects, the avatars are actually just pre-programmed entities coded to stop passing the ball uh, to the participant's avatar after a few tosses. And they just pass it back and forth amongst themselves. And there's this kind of experience of, wait a minute, why am I on the out here? Why am I on the outside? And when Kip Williams explains the effects of this kind of momentary experience, Uh, He says it's basically pain. 
pain and actually uh, activate some of the same brain regions associated with the experience of physical pain. Again, kind of going back to this idea that we're really uh, evolved to be highly attuned to whether or not we're accepted or rejected by others, uh, sometimes exquisitely so. So being on the out can be very painful, especially when chronic. You heard Jeffrey. In order to have a healthy lifestyle, you must add some social time to your calendar. You can't expect your relationships to endure and neglect and stay healthy. Let's start by looking at exceptional relationships and what makes our relationships exceptional. Let's first underscore that relationships exist on a continuum. And at one end of the continuum is contact with no connection. And at the other end of the continuum is exceptional. And we're not advocating you turn every single relationship in your life into exceptional because that would be exhausting and impossible. But you can move any relationship along the continuum to at least robust and functional. (laughs) And then you can, in some cases, move it even farther. So the characteristics of an exceptional relationship are you can both be more fully yourselves and you don't have to hide behind these spun images. You are both willing to be vulnerable and you're not afraid that what you say will be used against you. We already talked about that. You're both willing to be honest and you have learned how to deal with conflict productively. And you're both committed to your own and each other's growth and development. When you have all of those present in sufficient intensity at the exceptional end of the continuum, you can have some of those present along the way. You can have some of them present in less intensity along the way, which is why The book is not just for people who want to learn how to build exceptional relationships. It's for anybody who wants to know how to deepen any relationship in any way towards that. This is why people love our show and more importantly, our programs, because we explore the mechanisms that allow you to control how those relationships evolve. It gives you the power to take your relationships and set them to any place in that continuum. That is a superpowers that others can only hope for. Now, there can be a problem with making friends. You can't run a sales script to make new friends. People are trying to sell themselves to one another, but that person has a great bullshit detector. Instead, truly care about the questions you ask and course correct if needed, instead of following a script, as Coggins and Brown share with us. Salespeople were like, very aware, like these great salespeople, like they were aware, like they could say something, no, it didn't land and course correct real time. As opposed to the other people that were saying something, trying to remember what comes next, right? Like you had this, like the, these people would talk, you'd watch them on Zooms. They would be talking to people and you could see it. They knew the person did not think that they were listening. They, the, the, the person thought they were waiting to speak and they were shifting. The questions. Everybody's like, tell me the questions to ask. What are the best questions to ask in the interview? Like, what are the best questions? It's like, what they're really asking, you know, is like, give me a leading question that I know the answer to that someone else doesn't. So it makes me look smart. You know what the new cool science is saying? We smell bullshit a mile away. Like, we know when you're bullshitting us. You can't act authentic. You can't copy other people and be authentic. And what we see a ton with young salespeople, especially, but it's, it's true across the board, but we see it a lot with students who get out into the real world is they get out there and they find themselves in a selling situation and they think that they're supposed to act a certain way and they're supposed to know certain things and they're supposed to do what a, a quote unquote great seller 
uh, is supposed to do. And so they'll go out there and they'll do these things. They'll look to some example, um, somebody in their company, maybe the best, sell- the best salesperson, the top performer in their company. They'll look at that person and they'll say, what is he or she doing? And I'm going to do exactly what they're doing. I'm going to ask the same questions. I'm going to use the same script. I'm going to tell the same jokes. And then they go out in front of a customer and they do just that. And the customer doesn't buy. And they're like, well, wait a minute. I did exactly what the best person on the team is doing. Why didn't it work? Can't be my fault. Now it's got to be the customer's fault or it's got to be something outside of me because it's not me. I did everything that that person's doing. And you know, we all, that's really the core of authenticity. The reason that it works for the best performer in the room is because it's authentic to them. And they ask questions that they actually want to know the answers to. And they tell jokes that they think are funny that maybe somebody else doesn't quite think is funny. So when you start to try to pretend to be something, you know, we, we, we say in our book and, and, and remind people often, you can't act authentic. You literally can't. By definition, you can't act authentic. There you have it. People know when they're being sold to, and we intuitively can see other people are incongruent when doing so. We've been saying this for the last 16 years. This is why we give our clients all the tools and help them learn how to use them. So they're well-versed in all the communication concepts we've been discussing on the show. In the next few clips, our guests discuss mindset shifts that are needed to be successful in relationships. Learning mental flexibility is important for learning from mistakes, building resiliency, and having a healthy outlook on the inevitable challenges that you will face daily. Dealing with rejection, reframing it, changing the mindset around it, and learning from it. I think it starts with understanding learned optimism. I think that that's, that, that's really interesting. Like, for instance, Garrett and I did not meet our wives because our ex-girlfriends were perfect. No offense to our ex-girlfriends, right? So like at some point, what ends up happening is with age and experience, you start to realize that like if you want to have a breakthrough, you actually have to break through something. Like there has to be an obstacle. There has to be a rejection. So like when you when you look at these people and you and you say, wait, how are you like so okay with like what's happening right now? You know, with you getting rejected, with you not winning, it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, right? It's like they're not looking at this as like a mile marker or as a as a finish line. They're looking at it as a mile marker. Like if they think that they will actually succeed, they will continue to try, as naive as it sounds, and eventually they'll be right. And so we were finding, you know, that these people were attaching purpose to everything that they were doing. Right, even though we were so goal oriented, right, and we were trying to figure out, like, yo, how are you? How are you hitting these goals? Like, how are you mastering goal orientation? Like, are you looking at it every single day? And they were just trying to figure out a way to tell us what their purpose was. And it was like this: every time we would see it, like they just weren't looking at um, at the goal, or you know, of hitting it or not hitting it. It wasn't causing them to go into a place of scarcity. It was just causing them to want to figure it out even more. Like they cared differently about the goal because it was attached to a purpose. So resiliency has a lot to do with the conversations you have with yourself. Yeah, purpose is is definitely a big one. And there's a, a lot of what these great people are doing from a mindset standpoint too is reframing things. And it can sound really cringy and cheesy to say, oh, you reframe your failure as as a positive thing. But you know, Colin's example about meeting our wives is, is a good one. Like there, it, it's easier to do in the past what these great people do is they do it in the moment. And there's a concept that in the book called that we talk about a lot as well called celebrating the process. 
And that's really, really important to us. It's something that we discovered from all of these greats. And it's something that, um, that we've definitely incorporated into our own lives. And what we mean by celebrating the process is it, they're not just celebrating the wins. They're not celebrating the closed deals. They're celebrating the failures and the hangups and the lessons along the way because they know that, okay, I got hung up on or I got rejected or I got this objection that I couldn't, uh, that I couldn't overcome because it was legitimate. I'm going to celebrate that because now I'm going to learn from it and I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do next time so that, I, so that it doesn't happen again. We hate hearing or saying no as Coggins and Brown share. I got to add, I wouldn't be doing my job as the logical uh, partner in this duo here of, of not talking about why people are wishy-washy on giving a no and why we don't like getting no's in the first place. And that's all just evolution because, you know, thousands of years ago when humans were just starting to evolve, if you got shunned by the group, you were dead. You were getting eaten by a saber-toothed tiger or something crazy like that. So, you know, we we are everything in our DNA wants us to be accepted. So whether we're telling somebody no, we don't want them to reject us. We don't want them to think negatively negatively of us when we say no. Just like we don't like to hear the word no because we're it, it feels like rejection and we feel like we're going to get cast out. So it is in our DNA. So when you talk about the fact, Johnny, that it's it's no fun to get a no and you do take it personally. That's not our fault. That is that is our DNA. That is human nature. And that is why we do it. And it's why it's so important to reframe it and and do some of the things that we talk about in the book, Colin. I mean, you know this from dating, right? It's like you want to avoid the objection. Like, please lie to me. Make me feel like I got this deal. Like, we're going to go all the way high until I ask you to buy. And then you're going to shut me down. But, you know, like, what if like, you wanted to know where the friction was as early as possible? Not to, like, win, but to, like, actually solve the problems. Like, you would ask hard questions, like, often and early. And like, that's, that's an example, you know, like the, my girlfriend example, my ex-girlfriend example is, is one of many that Garrett and I use a lot around these really successful people. Like early on in your career, like you try to avoid the friction until you realize that like anything like really awesome that happened to you happened because you learned from something, right? Where there was friction, you were able to overcome it. You were able to build from it. And like, at some point, you realize that like, if you want that, you have to look for it. So then you start seeking friction. You start looking for problems to solve. You're looking for no's, right? I mean, like, that, that's a whole mindset shift that takes time. And that's, just, that's, that's sales IQ, right? Like sales IQ is directly correlated to this awareness that we're talking about. But yeah, we love no's. Reject us all day. How else are we going to get better? They describe the difference between their approach of pathological optimism their spin on learned optimism versus toxic positivity. We totally understand the, the backlash against toxic positivity, and it's fair. I, I think what toxic positivity is saying is that if the message is just cheer up, if, if you decide to be happy, you can be happy. That's, that's sort of like end of story period. Um, that is what toxic positivity ba uh, backlashes against. It's, it's like, yeah, something really, really existentially terrible could have happened today. And I, I can't just think, oh, I'm going to be happy about this. I'm going to I'm going to look back on this and it's going to be OK. That's not fair. And, and we agree with that. But there's this concept. I'm going to go science again on you, Colin. But there's this concept of the hedonic treadmill that comes up sometimes in psychological research. And it basically says that when something good happens, you know, our, our happiness goes up. When something bad happens, our happiness goes down. But at the end of the day, our happiness always reverts to this default baseline level for each individual. And that can be different for you than it is for me and different for Colin than it is for someone else. 
Um, but we all default to our baseline. And so as we were talking to all of these successful people and sort of crystallizing the concept of pathological optimism, what we realized is that what they're doing is they're creating habits that are ultimately raising that baseline level of happiness. So no, they are not happy when a, when a tragic thing happens to a family member or when business goes bad one day, like really bad. But over time, because of the ability to look back and to reframe certain situations and to be a learner, they're able to increase that default level of happiness. And that's really what we mean when we're talking about pathological optimism is that in the long term, that's the mindset and that's the trend that they're going after. Now, what gets in the way of forming meaningful connections? Stereotyping or trying to read other people's minds. Yeah, there's a few things that get in our way, get in the way of our ability to form genuine connection. And one, as you're alluding to, is stereotypes. We see the other in these stere- along these simplified caricatures uh, in terms of, you know, we have images of what the average Trump supporter is or the average Trump opposer is. And then what we end up doing in these interactions or encounters across the political line, say, is to interact with the our, a projection in our mind rather than the flesh and blood person right before us. And this happens all the time. I mean, I know I am frequent, <laughs> when I go back to New Jersey, my hometown, I'm frequently stereotyped as the egghead academic. And I can just feel the quicksand <laughs> of judgment. I'm sliding into it <laughs> as I try to explain my point of view on some academic matter. Uh, anyway, but I think that is a, a big problem. And so I think one way out is through respect. Respect, which is a word whose etymology means to look again, respectate. So looking harder, looking more deeply is one antidote to the effects of stereotypes. And there's a lot of research that suggests that just pausing and thinking, why am I thinking this, can do a lot of good in terms of breaking the hold of stereotypes on our perception. The other element here that I think would be is kind of interesting to talk about is uh, this work on perspective getting. Too often when we're trying to understand another person, we try to take their perspective, imagine it, when really what we should be doing is asking people for it. And this is research from uh, Nick Epley and Juliana Schroeder showing that we vastly overestimate our ability to read other people's minds. We get it wrong, even when reading our friends' minds, even when reading our own minds. Like, we don't really know ourselves as well as, as we think no. we do. Yeah. <laughs> and so, it's like, sometimes less well. Yeah, if um, you journal at all, you, you recognize like that, that real quick. Yeah. <laughs> right. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors according to Indeed data. And a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people because they're all gonna give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That's right. And so perspective <laughs> getting is one tool to kind of break down these barriers where we just ask people, hey, what, do you, what did you mean by that? What were you thinking? Uh, you know, what do you feel on that issue? Uh, what do you think about the topic of minimum wage? And ask in a really kind of non-judgmental uh, way, open, curious, genuinely curious way. That That is a powerful way. I, I'm, I'm into these everyday, scientifically validated ways to create connection that seem ordinary on the face of it, but then upon deeper inspection, they're actually pretty extraordinary. The act of asking a question, asking someone for their point of view, surfaces who they are, and it creates a magic that really can be life-changing. And we've seen this in a lot of our own research. In this section, our friend David Siegel, CEO of Meetup, discusses the importance of finding events and social functions around your interests, passions, and excitement. We encourage all of our listeners to make a list of interests and core values, and cross-reference them with Meetup and other sites that promote social events in your town. Facebook groups, Meetup, city events, all over your area. And then go to those events, explore. There are Meetups for every niche. They are big groups or small groups, so it's easy to connect on a deeper level. When you have a 
an identity that's particularly strong and meaningful for you. And you always think to yourself, as many people do, oh, no one's like me. I'm so different than, any, than everyone else. And then you are able to find a group that represents so many people who are so similar to your lifestyle. It's such a warm and meaningful experience. That's what has surprised me, which is just how niche it gets. Like, you know, vegan lovers who love to run marathons. You know, like we just have very, very niche groups. And I think the beauty of those niche groups is what you referenced earlier, which is they're smaller groups. It's one thing to attend like a conference and have a thousand people at that conference and be totally overwhelmed and have like become a wallflower standing, you know, back against a wall, kind of maybe walking over and seeing a couple of people huddling together. It's another thing when there's only like the average meetup event only has like nine people on average that attend the event. So it's small. And when there's that few people, you're not going to stand on the sidelines. Like there's going to be a greeter. They're going to welcome you in. You're going to get, they're going to get your name. They're going to learn more about you. And, and it makes it very welcoming. And, and people could be more vulnerable, you know, in smaller situations. When people could be more vulnerable, as I'm sure you tell people, that's how you build deeper relationships. When you're able to share things about yourself, other people share things. And then the depth of conversation is a heck of a lot more meaningful than talking about like the freaking weather or like, you know, or whether or not, you know, the uh, Bucks are going to win the championships. Or, or Connections happen at every single event. David makes an example of someone connecting professionally at a social event and making friends at a professional event. I got to tell AJ and Johnny a very brief story just about what you were talking about, which I met and I was in, um, in Silicon Valley, obviously, not obviously, but pre-pandemic. And I met this very, very introverted um, engineer. And he's a meetup organizer. He said, I have two groups. One of my groups is a group for, for people to bowl and build relationships bowling together. It's a bowling group. I do it for social reasons to get like kind of feel comfortable socially. And the other group is a career networking uh, 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 group. And I, I'm the organizer of those two groups. And he said, and this is insane. I've gotten two jobs from my bowling group and I met like a friend and a girlfriend through the career networking group. And what that speaks to is kind of the overlap between the personal and the professional. That when you, one of the great things about Meetup is you build personal relationships that could then turn into professional relationships and potential professional relationships that could turn into personal relationships. And when you could kind of do both of those things, it's, it's beneficial kind of as a human being in, in all ways. Now, what if you can't find any events in your area? Well, organize your own. As we discuss, what makes a great meetup organizer? Persistence, creating a safe environment, making the event interactive, as well as reaching out to everyone before the event so they feel welcome. Much like when you teach, you actually learn more than anything else. Similarly, if you're an organizer, you actually gain more than anything else because you're organizing the group. The satisfaction that one gets because you are an organizer of a group that is changing 5, 10, 15, 30, whatever number of people's lives is just so meaningful. There are people that have said that, you know, they have a full-time job, you know, they have a family, but they feel like the most meaningful thing that they've done is to, is to create this meetup group that has helped people, helped so many people that deal with whatever thing that they, that they have in life. So number one thing by far, which you already said, AJ and Johnny, is the organizer. What makes for a great organizer? So number one, is persistence, much like an entrepreneur. 
Meaning, if you have your first event and two or three people show up, you might say, oh man, oh, I failed, whatever, I give up. No, that's two or three people. That's a start. Like, that's how you start a community. You start a community with two or three people, and then you ideate with those people, and you bring those people in to be your co-leaders of the group, and then you go from three people to six people or eight people or 10 people. So if, if one has a need to get, you know, enormous success kind of day one and doesn't understand that building a community actually really does take time, then that's going to be a big challenge. So persistence is, is one kind of really important attribute of, of, a, of a great organizer. The second, without a doubt, is creating a, a safe environment where every person who's present can be as vulnerable and who they are and their authentic self as possible. If anyone feels like they're being judged in a meetup event, whether it's any kind of event, doesn't have to be just, I'm not just my support events, but every possible type of event, then the best organizers are one who share things about themselves and create an environment where people are sharing experiences among each other. The third is just interactivity. There are some organizers that are just, you know, they want to just give a presentation or something like that. That just doesn't work. Um, the best organizer experiences is what you've also referenced, which is, is building relationships between, between people and really interacting with each other and having that like downtime, meaning the time before the event starts, the time after the event ends. It's almost like that parking lot conversation after an event with the three, four, five people that kind of are lingering around is the best part of a meetup. Yes. Because it's the, it's, <laughs> it's that like, uh, it's, it, that's what leads to, oh, let me get your number. Let me get your email. Let's, let's hang out sometime. And I would say one last thing to point out that among great organizers, they welcome each person who becomes a member of the group personally. And they try to get to know them prior to the event. Yes. Because prior. what's so terrifying for many people is to go to that event the first time and not know anyone mm -hmm. and feel like, oh, I don't know what's going to happen. But if you, if the organizer messages you beforehand and says, hey, where are you from? Hey, what kind of stuff are you interested in? Um, where do you live? Whatever kind of chit chat kind of pre-conversation before the event, it's so much more valuable for that for to in welcoming that member and increasing the likelihood that the member is going to show up to the event that they RSVP to, than just you know having no communication, having all the communication only be at events. It's the communication before events, and it's the the, the photos and 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 other ways of communicating after the events within the group that 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 make for building a great community as well. Why this change in environment is beneficial to your growth. The environment you find yourself in socially dictates the way you behave in them. That's social norms. A great way to change behavior is to put people from their old group into a new group. Many of the situations that we come to are predefined to a great extent. You're supposed to dance on a dance floor. You're supposed to drink at a bar. You're supposed to eat at a restaurant. There's, there's kind of scripts that we have for our day-to-day -day situations. And yet, there is the, this kind of room to maneuver to kind of push the boundaries in ways that create more connection and 
more creativity, I think, in, in the case that you used. It was a kind of cre- a creative moment. And there's a couple things in what you say that I, I could kind of highlight, I think, that might be interesting. One is the power of social norms, right? right? It's not so much what is inside of me that predicts my behavior, but what I think we do what I think is okay and appropriate here. And so we that's a lever to pull, the social norms. And we can often create them, as you're suggesting, and it's kind of yeah, as a micro norm. The second thing is that I think in redefining a situation, you often need the support of a new group, right? One of the best ways to create change is to take people out of their existing group, put them in a new group with a new direction for change. And that's one of the things that you did in that situation is to... Basically, when you create a new group, the turf is wide open. This group could be anything. It's like a T group, right? It could be anything. And we could do anything. And there's a lot of possibility. One person in isolation, very difficult. Some people can do it, right? Some people have that leadership skill, that charisma to redefine the situation. But that takes time, I think, to develop. But if we can kind of create a little coalition within these situations, we often change them in pretty surprising ways. So take a moment before you go out and ask yourself how many people you'd like to meet. Before heading out, small, obtainable goal, one to five people, engage with them through introducing yourself and asking some questions about the event, why they came, have they been there before, what you can expect. Your questions will allow for those conversations to get started. Allow for your work to compound. Three new people a week for a month, that's 12 people a month. If these are regular events, you'll be seen and heard. That seen and heard will breed familiarity and propinquity, nature's attraction switches. We can actually use questions to situation craft to create deeper relationships, as Jeffrey explains. One thing that you said that really resonates is, uh, there's two things. One is that you can choose your, your situations, as Johnny said. like We have a lot of agency in choosing our situations. Second is, even within a given physical situation, we have a lot of power in altering it in seemingly subtle ways that can be very profound. So yeah, we might be at a restaurant together, or we might be at a bar together, or we might be in a classroom together. You might be a teacher, right? It's the same kind of brick and mortar place, yet as people in the situation, we share some of that power of the situation. We can alter it. And there's many different tools for doing this. One is the question, right? A question can be powerful. As you're saying, AJ, there are some questions that open up worlds and there are some questions that close them. The craft of the question is a really important lever for us in our day-to-day interactions. And there's actually some lovely research by Art and Elaine Aaron, two psychologists of connection, and they have this exercise or activity where people ask questions of one another. I think they're 48, could be sometimes they're 24. And the questions are of gradually increasing intimacy such that by the end, you're asking the person a question like, if it were your last day on earth, what would you want to say to your loved ones that you haven't said already? And why haven't you said that? And that's a question that opens up a lot. That opens up a psychological world. There is some craftsmanship. That's why I chose the term craftsmanship. You can't just jump into that kind of question, right? It's something, it's like a musical composition. That would be a false note. You build up to it. But if you're aware that 
man, there is more potential in this situation than I can see, which is one of the lessons of social psychology. Then you start thinking, okay, how can I create a little opening here so that that potential can come out? Now, this isn't just for personal relationships. Susan McPherson shares her framework for networking, and it can also be applied to social connections, the gather, ask, do method. But I will say that the underlying theme beneath gather, ask, do is this notion of leading with how can I be of help to others? And this does not mean not taking the oxygen mask first, but in, in other words, it means leading with help, help will come back, come back to you. So in the gather phase, the first and most important component is to do some self-reflection and connect with yourself and really do a sense of deep dive in what are your hopes and dreams over the next four years, four months, even four weeks. And who are you going to want to connect with or reconnect with that is going to help you meet those goals? And then in addition, that you can be helpful to. Notice it's that reciprocity, okay? Also during that time in the gather phase, what are your secret sauces? What are your superpowers that you can bring to the fold? And lastly, what are you going to do to ensure that you break that hermetically sealed bubble? In other words, How do you ensure you're doing everything in your power to meet people who don't look like you, sound like you, the same age as you, the same color, race, et cetera? So that is the gather phase. And I would go so far as say we are in a very good kind of reset moment in this world where we might be able to use this methodology. The next is the ask phase. And the ask phase is learning to ask the meaningful questions of others so that we can learn about their hopes and dreams and think about how we can be helpful. And if you listen carefully, which we are woefully bad at doing, myself included, we can get to the do phase, which honestly is to me the most fun. And that's when you take all that data that you listen to, and then you become responsive, reliable, trustworthy, and follow up on the you know what, S-H-I-T, that you're gonna do to be that person. Now, how do we turn these acquaintances into friends? Follow-up is the most overlooked aspect of meeting new people and building relationships. In all of our programs, we help our clients build out their social sales funnel so that they have a plan that is foolproof. This social sales funnel helps with showcasing your value and is focused on building your own network rather than hoping others will invite you to theirs. This keeps our clients from chasing and people-pleasing. Ask yourself, how can I add value? What's my own secret sauce? How do I find out what that is, as Susan shares? Well, first of all, I'm going to tell every single listener that you all have superpowers and secret sauces, and they're going to change from year to year, even maybe from month to month. And, you know, if you can't figure it out yourself, ask your friends, ask your loved ones, ask your partner, ask your dog. Okay. But literally uh, there, there are things you could be a fabulous cook. You could know a foreign language. You could be great at jump rope. Um, but, you know, when, when a young person comes to me, and I, 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 shouldn't, I, I shouldn't use those qualifiers, but if somebody's just out of college, this is a generalization, but I have found that they are better equipped with some new technologies that I might be. Okay, again, generalization. Now, Johnny makes a great point on adding value to other people's lives, and Susan wholeheartedly agreed. I know so many folks who feel that they are very obliging. They, they, I'm a high value person. I'll give you the shirt off my back, but yet I'm not making progress in my connections. 
but it's the communication and whether or not it's effective. For instance, rather than asking, how may I help you? Or what are you working on? What can we do? Right? I hear, well, hey, if you ever need anything, let me know. And that is ineffective communication. That is not going to get you yeah. to the do. That is not going to get other people to open up about what they yeah. have going on. Yet I hear that all the time from so-called uh, pe- pe- uh, high-value people who are like, well, that's, I, I said, let me know if you need anything. But that's, as, as I said, it's not direct. It's, it's not opening things up to, let me help you on your mission. What can we do? Let's, let's move this forward. And, uh, for a lot of the work that we do, and when I'm talking about networking and everyone usually says, when I ask, where do you have issues with that? Or like, well, I make the connection, but nothing ever seems to happen from it. Well, is that on other people or is that you being ineffective? And that communication changes everything. As soon as they hear that, they're like, and I ask, how is asking, how can I help you compared to, well, if you need anything, let me know. Think about how different both of those are. Great, great points. And I think that's where it's it's doing a little bit of underlying research when you are meeting with somebody or going to an event. You know, we live in a gifted world that either if it's an online event or a, you know, a cocktail party, you can inevitably find out a good amount of the people who are going to be in the room. So you can be doing a little bit of research before. Now you can use social media to build out relationships, but realize that true friendship happens offline. I am not anti-technology, and I am certainly a user of various social media platforms, both personally and professionally, but I don't consider that connecting, okay? There's a means to an end, and I will tell you, I have been to three weddings of people that I met on Twitter, but to me, the goal is, if it's someone who's meaningful to me, to get it offline. So how do we rekindle that connection that's gone stale? Susan shares her favorite strategies. Well, there's two things. One... In terms of reconnecting, and we have the perfect excuse. We've just been through this ridiculous horror show. Let's ring it for all it's worth and reach out to people. And you know what? Use the darn pandemic, right? I mean, why not? Obviously, you know, I, I am a. I, I believe in being direct, and I think it is totally fair to say some, to, to reach out to someone perhaps you haven't spoken to in ten years and say, "I dropped the ball. I want to reconnect. I want you back in my life." And yes, it's scary because you risk them either not responding or saying no, but you're no worse off, right? So, so one, I, I'm a big believer in being direct. I also think, you know, this is also that reset moment where let's think about who do we want in our lives and also how are we going to try to get more diversity and inclusion in our lives, right? Because we know we're going to learn more. We're going to be better professionally. Um, we're going to learn more about ourselves. So you know, that, 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 that doing that little bit, and I know I keep harboring on this, but doing a little bit of self-reflection first and thinking about why you do want to reconnect. Now, in terms of staying connected, um, I have been on occasion called a human CRM, which I don't know is a compliment or an insult. But what I do is I literally, you know, when you get the brain cloud of somebody, you know, Johnny pops in my brain. And what do we typically do? We'll get to it later right? Like just like the dishes. But you know what? I reach out right that very second. And if I can't, 
I voice memo myself or I jot down. I'm a, I'm, I still very much carry around a little notepad. I know that sounds like I'm a dinosaur, but that works for me. So to me, when people pop in my brain, I act upon it. And sometimes there's no agenda other than I'm sending some love or I want to know how you're doing. No rush. No, no. Don't feel the pressure to come back to me. This week's shout out goes to Susan. Susan had been a mother, a business owner, and a caretaker for way too long and wanted to make a change in her personal life. And now that her son has grown and went off to college, she had found herself getting a bit antsy at home. Most importantly, realizing that she had allowed her social circle to dwindle and fall apart. Now with extra time on her hands, she wanted to reconnect and enjoy the life she had created, but felt overwhelmed and wanted to be sure to find like-minded, high-value people full of life such as herself. So she joined the Elite Human Dynamics Private Coaching Program. She's now out networking and connecting with friends, new and old, and even has a long-awaited European vacation on horizon with an old friend she hasn't seen in quite some time. Life is too short to not be sharing it with amazing friends and family. Way to go, Susan. I can't wait to see the pictures. Have you ever felt like you're just blending into the crowd? Want to stand out and really leave a lasting impression? Absolutely. And that's why we're so excited to tell you about Elite Human Dynamics Private Coaching. This isn't your ordinary career and life coaching. It's a game changer. It's designed to unlock the secrets of charismatic influence. Imagine walking into a room and just owning it. The energy, the allure, the gravitas, that could be you. And it's not just about charisma. Private executive coaching will transform how you communicate. We're talking persuasive communication, the kind that not only gets your point across, but does it in a way that is unforgettable. Think about the opportunities when every word you speak has impact and weight. Plus, it's about leveraging your social capital. Build genuine relationships that benefit both you and everyone you connect with. It's all about fostering connections that lead to real opportunities in your life. Opportunities that can change your life, career, your everything. So are you ready to elevate yourself? If you've been looking for that edge, that spark to ignite your personal and professional growth, this is it. But spaces are limited. Seriously, don't miss out. Check out Elite Human Dynamics Private Coaching and apply today at theartofcharm.com slash elite. It's time to unleash your true potential. And trust us, once you experience it, there's no going back. Unlock your charisma and make every connection count theartofcharm.com slash elite. Before we head out, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a huge favor? Could you head on over to Apple Podcasts, give us a review, rate the show. It raises our visibility and helps others find the show. And a huge thank you before we go out to our producers, Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. We want you guys to go out there and have an epic week. Yeah.